from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director. We're going to look today at what the new Rishi Sunak government means for Britain's relationship with the European Union. I'm delighted to be joined by a special guest, Peter Foster, who's author of the Britain After Brexit briefing, which appears every, every week in the Financial Times and is a great Brexit watcher. Well, welcome, Peter. Thanks, Charles. Good to be here. Good. Well, nice to have you. Um, we're going to look at what's happening in the UK-EU relationship, whether or not Rishi Sunak's government means we may be able to get a bit of a, a reset. I mean, certainly Liz Truss, during her very brief period as Prime Minister, did actually start to improve the tone of the relationship somewhat. She went off to Prague for the first meeting of the new body called the European Political Community. She had some bilateral meetings there, including with President Macron. And generally, the, the, the vibes got more positive and more encouraging. And she set her negotiators off to try and get a compromise on the famous Northern Ireland Protocol, which we'll come back to in a moment. Just before we get into the nitty gritty, do, do you think there's a real chance of a reset, Peter? I think there's certainly a, a desire for a reset, Charles, but we've sort of been here before. I think the, the limits of the reset you know, we'll come back to the Northern Ireland Protocol. As you said, I hear the same. You know, I hear from European capitals, actually, trust made quite a good impression. Uh, and Sunak obviously has sort of macro desire to stabilise the economy, to stabilise the UK's reputation in the market. So he'll want to do that. And, you know, you add in the Ukraine situation, the winter energy situation, there's lots of good reasons why he'll want to stabilise relations with Europe. To do that, he's going to have to get over this, this hump of the Northern Ireland Protocol. There's no avoiding that because lots of other things, as you know, are blocked. You know, the Horizon Europe 2020 and, and, and actually so much of the kind of TCA cooperation, the trade and cooperation agreement kind of committees and stuff aren't really going anywhere in terms of improving the operation of that deal. So, yes, I think there's goodwill. Uh, it's good that, you know, James Cleverley, who also made encouraging noises, is still Foreign Secretary. Chris Eaton-Harris is still Northern Ireland Secretary. So Steve Baker is still the Minister in Northern Ireland. So, you know, those familiar faces are there. There's continuity there. But you've still got to get over the substance issue. And I suspect the gaps are still quite large. We'll come on to the protocol in a second. But first of all, let's just deal with two pieces of legislation going through the British Parliament, which are quite controversial and quite relevant for the relationship between the UK and the EU. One of them is the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which I'll ask about in a minute, but there's also something called the Retained EU Law Bill. Why is that important, Peter? You've been writing quite a lot about this. It's an extraordinary piece of legislation, Charles. So you might remember during the campaign, Liz Truss said she wanted to have all retained EU law. So that's all the law that we sucked onto the UK statute but when we were leaving because there simply wasn't time to amend it. Uh, it was, you know, vast chunks of law that underpins workers' rights, environmental uh, standards, etc., because we've been a member of the EU for 40 years, was sucked onto the statute book. And this piece of the retained EU law bill sets a deadline, like a sunset clause, on all that legislation, which expires at the end of 2023. Now, that's an incredibly short period of time. And unless the decision is made to retain or revoke uh, those bits of law, they will just fall off the statute book. And the criticism of the bill is that it 
clogs up massive amounts of Whitehall time. If you're going to transpose the laws onto the UK statute book into UK legislation, you're going to need to do possibly, you know, 1900 statutory instruments, which would take every Whitehall department all day and all night between now and the end of 2023. But it's also quite undemocratic because it doesn't necessarily take back control for the voters, it gives ministers control to decide what they're going to retain and what they're going to keep. And if nothing happens, then the law, as it were, just drops off the end of the cliff and creates uncertainty and difficulty both for businesses and for and for NGOs and everybody involved in, in regulating anything. So it's a very controversial piece of legislation, but it's also very talismanic. You know, it's the thing that Rhys Mogg with Brexit opportunities was going on about. And so Sunak's issue is whether he can delay and dilute that legislation to make it practical uh, without losing too much goodwill uh, from the ERG, from the pro-Brexit, hard pro-Brexit wing of the Conservative Party. I mean, there are early signs that he's going to step back. His own pledge was to do it all within 100 days, which is even more ridiculous than the end of 2023. But it's an incredibly radical piece of legislation, which I expect will be diluted, but probably at a political cost to Sunak. Yeah, and of course, if he, if he doesn't dilute it, then bang go many of the social environmental protections, consumer rights protections that British people are used to enjoying the benefits of, which will annoy not only NGOs, but I think many voters as well. So my, my guess is he may well look to water that down somewhat. The, the other piece of legislation going through Parliament is the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which, if I understand it correctly, Peter, would basically give the UK government the power to tear up large parts of the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, which really annoys the EU because the EU regards the Northern Ireland Protocol as an international treaty as part of the withdrawal agreement. And this, this Act of Parliament, if it is passed, it's currently in the House of Lords, would, would mean that the British government could just tear up an international treaty. And that would, as far as the EU is concerned, probably provoke a trade war. Do, do you think they're going to push ahead with the Protocol Bill? And wh wh where has it got to in Parliament? Well, you know, it is, it's in the Lords now, and we'll go through a period of ping pong where the Lords will amend it and send it back to the Commons, and then they'll send it back to the Lords. But there's a pretty high chance, I think, that this bill is on track to be uh, law in the new year. And as you say, Charles, you know, the important thing to understand about this piece of legislation is it's not tinkering around the edges with the Northern Ireland Protocol. It is a fundamental tearing up of the deal. It just turns it on its head. You remember the Northern Ireland Protocol in order to avoid a return of a border north-south in Ireland, left Northern Ireland in the EU single market for goods. And that required a border in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in order essentially to make sure that the goods were compliant with the EU single market for goods. And the, and the Northern Ireland bill really just turns it on its head. It, it rips it up uh, and was made very clear to Liz Trust by Joe Biden in New York in the UN General Assembly. And the same message will go to Sunak, that if the UK passes that bill, essentially all bets are off. You know, I think, you know, if you go back into the mists of Brexit time, it's important to remember that the compromise that Boris Johnson signed on Northern Ireland was part of that three-legged stool that underpinned the trade agreement, that there would be a deal on money, that we'd pay our bills, that we'd have a deal on citizens' rights to respect the rights of UK and EU citizens on either side of the channel, and a viable and permanent solution to Northern Ireland. And so the argument on the EU side is that, you know, if you're just going to rip up that deal, then one of the legs of the stool on which the entire TCA is based has, has gone, essentially. It's a kind of good faith clause. And so the stakes are very, very high because I don't think the Lords are going to really put their foot down and force Sunak to use the Parliament Act. But Sunak is making 
you know, very strong noises to the ERG, to the, to the right of the party, that he was very committed to the bill uh, and that he's prepared to use the Parliament Act if he has to. And so the clock is ticking because, you know, that means that in order to avoid that particular car crash, which, as you rightly say, Sunak doesn't want, you know, remember, he's the Chancellor who stopped David Frost back in October last year from causing a trade war by crashing the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, he's got Jeremy Hunt as his Chancellor. He's got to stabilise the market. He can't have a trade war with Europe. But by the same token, he's promised to stick with this bill. So he's between a rock and a hard place unless they can get a deal uh, on the protocol sometime before Christmas or early in the new year. Well, I've just come back from Washington, D.C., where I talked to one White House official who told me that in, in Joe Biden's first telephone call with Rishi Sunak, he brought up the protocol and was, I don't know exactly what he said, of course, but he basically said that he would wanted the British to try and compromise on the Northern Ireland Protocol, words to that effect. So I think that well, he's got to worry, as you say, soon, it's got to worry about the ERG. He's also got to worry about Joe Biden. And of course, he's got to worry about his European partners. How do they view this, Peter? I mean, do, do the partners accept the British case that the current Northern Ireland Protocol really does need to be rejigged because it is a, a threat to the identity of the unionist community of many in the unionist community in Northern Ireland? Or, or are they unsympathetic to the British a case given that the British actually signed this international treaty and do they just think we should bloody well get on and implement it without without whinging or, or do, is there some sympathy for the British case and on the EU side of this? I, I think there is sympathy Charles but I think it's limited sympathy I think there's two things that that on the British side you need to keep in mind the first is you know the Europeans have a lot to worry about right now they've got Ukraine they've got rows over how to deal with the energy crisis etc and when I go to Brussels, I'm just struck by how far they've moved on. You know, there was a time when Brexit and all this Northern Ireland negotiation was front and centre in discussions in Brussels. And what I hear actually is that in some places, the member states are actually less flexible than the European Commission. The European Commission is always painted as the demon here, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, super officious, non-flexible, but actually, you know, when some of the ideas are floated back, it's the member states who are going, well, we can be flexible to a point, but fundamentally, we can't have Northern Ireland as a backdoor into the single market. We can't have the protocol diluting the, the, the single market. And actually, the Commission finds itself somewhat persuading the member states to be more flexible. I think the member states do want to deal. They do want this issue to go away. They do want to stabilise relations with the UK, but not at any price. And of course, you know, it's not yet clear to them whether Sunak has any more political wiggle room than Theresa May or Boris Johnson or Liz Truss did before him. And I think that's what they're waiting to see. Is Sunak prepared to take on uh, the right of the Conservative Party, particularly over issues like the jurisdiction of the ECJ? You know, there's just a limit to how far the, the member states and the Commission are going to move on that. Northern Ireland is part of the EU single market for goods. The, the EU's highest court is obviously the, the power in the land there. You can soften it by having some kind of antechamber for disputes to be worked out before it gets the court. But the EU is not going to move, I don't think, fundamentally on this issue of the court. You know, now that's the kind of talismanic sovereignty issue that exercises the David Frost and the Bill Cashes of this world. And so there's still quite big gaps on that. And when you've got a Labour government in waiting, as it were, when you look at the polls at the moment, the temptation might be on the EU side essentially to, to wait out the Brits to wait out Sunak and wait for a more constructive government under Keir Starmer if that's what happens 
that's more able to make a move and that maybe you know disincentivizes the eu to really radically move you mentioned the court of justice peter and i my own feeling is that if there is going to be a compromise on the uh, northern Ireland protocol probably the british are going to have to give some ground on that the basis for that being that businesses in northern ireland and most people in northern ireland as far as one can tell don't think the, the role of the court of justice in policing the protocol is the most important problem with the protocol. I think the people in Northern Ireland are more concerned with the practical uh, problems of, in, of, of the friction at the border of the controls and checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, for example. So if there is to be a compromise and if the negotiations currently underway are, are to reach a, a successful outcome, perhaps, as you say, in the next few months, can, can you just speculate a bit, bit of what might be the the way forward what could be the compromise that gets this over the line so the obvious compromise is that the commission moves a bit further on its the package of measures it produced last october as you say to reduce the frictions at the border for goods going from great britain into northern ireland now we understand there's been a sort of new data sharing arrangement which is important between hmrc and dg trade because the eu will be more willing to take a risk, as it were, on goods going Great Britain into Northern Ireland, if they have data to see what's coming in. I don't think we'll get to that stage that the British proposed, which is essentially what what was described to me as an honesty box system, where everything that's going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland that says it's not going to go south of the border essentially goes in unchecked. Um, You know, the Commission point of view is that, well, what do you do about things that are being processed? What do you do about meat? that might be going into one place in Northern Ireland, but then might get turned into meat pies that might end up in the South. And so I think there's a limit. I think the Commission will probably move further to reduce the physical checks, which is, of course, what, you know, as it were, rubs the unionist noses in it at the border. But to do that, you're going to have data. And, you know, that means, Charles, that actually, if you have to have lots of data, you have to have lots of form filling. And that means, actually, it's not going to be a situation this trust and, and, the, and the ERG one, which is it, it's essentially the same to send a packet of bangers from Birmingham to Belfast as it is from Birmingham to Bournemouth. It's not going to be the same, but it will be reduced. If the Commission can move far enough on that stuff, uh, uh, on the customs and the animal check stuff, then the UK, I think, as you say, is going to have to move on the, uh, on the, on the role of the court. And one way of doing that and I think there might be some symp- some sympathy for this in, on the European side, is to, as it were, create an antechamber that means that all disputes over the protocol don't immediately end up in the court. Um, there is a kind of dispute resolution mechanism. And one European official said to me, to make sure that businesses have ample opportunity to resolve issues before it gets to the court. I mean, the court will remain at the apex. I think it has to. Um, and then I think it's therefore a question about whether or not Steve Baker, Rishi Sunak can sort of sell that as a victory. You know, and hitherto, every time you think there's been a kind of compromise confected, it sort of dies on the detail. It gets back to London and it's dead on arrival because the star chamber, the ERG, goes, no, you've still left part of the United Kingdom uh, in, in the orbit of a foreign trading power, and that's unacceptable. And if you get into that emotive sovereignty framing of the deal, it's very difficult to see how it's resolved because that is indeed what's happened. Remember, you know, Boris Johnson, that's what he did. He did the deal that Theresa May said no prime minister could do. Remember, Theresa May went for a customs union after a fashion to avoid exactly this situation. But Boris Johnson, he did leave Northern Ireland 
in the orbit of a foreign trade power. And then he paired that with a super hard Brexit, which meant that the gap between Great Britain and Northern Ireland was much higher and bigger than it otherwise would have been. And so I still think it's going to be a difficult sell. You know, I'm not the political correspondent, but the gap is going to be large and Sudak is going to have to succeed where other prime ministers have failed. Yeah, just we'll, we'll come back. We'll conclude in a minute by asking whether there's going to be a deal. But just but just one final specific point on, on the possible compromise. What about so the famous SPS, the sanitary and phytosanitary standards for plant and animal health and food safety? Because surely if the British were to sign up more or less to respect EU standards on that area, that would reduce the hassle at the border to quite a large degree of goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Is there a chance the British could sign up to some sort of SPS deal? I don't think so. Not this government. I suspect a Labour government might well. But the idea, I mean, they were offered, Charles, you'll remember, they were offered a very bespoke uh, uh, sort of Swiss-style veterinary deal, high alignment veterinary deal, which the commission said, you know, the minute you've got this trade deal with the United States, because of course that that's the problem there. If you if you do this uh, a high alignment deal with the EU, it gets much harder to do the trade deal with the states. But we know that that's not coming anytime soon anyway. But this government refused. I, I think it, it's really, because you're right, it, it would obviously reduce the problem because the SPS, the phytosanitary stuff is the really complex bit. It's not the customs, actually, because that's all computers and paper. But the SPS is, is a really difficult issue. I don't think so, Charles. I'd be amazed if, if, if this government, with all its emphasis on Brexit freedoms, remember, you know, Rishi Sunak's a Brexiteer, would agree to align with the EU on phytosanitary stuff. I find, I find that hard to believe. Well, that means there will be more friction at borders than many farmers and food processors would like to see, I fear. While this negotiation is going on, Peter, there's, in political terms, there's, we're heading for another election in Northern Ireland because there hasn't been any executive for a number of months now because the main unionist party, the DUP, is boycotting the executive because they're so unhappy about the protocol threatening their sense of identity as they see it. So there is going to be another election. Does this matter for the talks going on between the UK and the EU on the protocol? And is, is it going to polarise opinion even more, and make it even harder to find a solution, do you think? I think it does matter. I mean, matters for Northern Ireland, Charles. It's worth thinking that four of the last six years, the power sharing executive hasn't happened because under the rules, both the two main parties, two largest parties need to be in it. And, and Sinn Féin pulled out over the scandal over the heating subsidies, the ash for cash, as it was called. And now the DUP won't go in over the protocol. And it's not at all clear, actually, that another election, which is sort of assumed to be now due on the 15th of December, will actually sort the problem. Um, and, you know, they've got people saying, actually, maybe we need to rethink the Good Friday Agreement and the way the power sharing works, because you now have the Alliance Party in Northern Ireland, which is a sort of centrist party in the middle. So the looming election, I think, creates a kind of window. If you think, I think the EU doesn't assume anything's going to happen before the November 17 budget statement. And then there's this election on the 15th of December. And in that window, I think there is a real going to be a real moment of intensity where we try and get a deal that will get the DUP back into power sharing and and obviate the need for the Northern mm. Ireland Protocol Bill. You know, that's the kind of sweet spot. But it's difficult. You know, it's, they're having very good technical talks at the moment, but no one's really put their cards on the table as to 
where they're really prepared to go. If you, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, was at the Tory party conference. I realised that was in the era of, of, of trust, but he was definitely framing the protocol in terms of we can't have the ECJ, uh, you know, controlling part of the United Kingdom. We need a fundamental rewrite on the lines of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Well, that's not going to happen. And so it's going to be a question of if you're going to get that deal, how much disappointment Sunak can make the right of his party swallow, you know, because they've been talismanically, they've been very attached to this. Uh, and maybe the circumstances have changed. Maybe the Ukraine war, maybe the scarring over the Liz Truss debacle, the Kamikaze budget, maybe that moves it. Maybe that changes the game. I, you know, I, I, I hope so. I really profoundly hope that that's right. Uh, and there are people in, in Parliament, uh, you know, much older and wiser heads than mine who've been watching Parliament for a long time, who think there is a possibility of a deal. Uh, and I hope that's right. I would just observe as a long-time Brexit uh, watcher that that would be a break with precedence. Well, I think, Peter, you and I have discussed this a number of times in recent months, and I tend to be slightly more optimistic than you, as, as you know. Uh, I mean, I think that if Sunak wants to do a deal, and he really needs a de deal to get a better relationship with the EU and, and to get things looking up for the British economy, he can, if he wishes, take on the ERG and the DUP and push through measures that they will not be happy with, because let's face it, they're not going to bring down his government. I mean, the Tories cannot afford to lose a fourth prime minister in a short period of time. If he, if he wants to be tough and push through a deal involving some compromises on the Court of Justice, I think he can do it. But as, as you rightly say, the ERG have proved to be very tough and very, if not invincible, a very powerful and effective organisation in, in recent years. So I'm, I put my money on a deal in the end. But you, you're a little bit, still a bit more sceptical than me, are you, Peter? I, I, I am a bit more sceptical in the sense that if you look how you look at Sunak's cabinet, look at the reappointment of Suella Braverman, uh, you know, something that he knew the, you know, the Home Secretary who'd been sacked for breaches of a protocol on handing confidential documents. He reappointed her. He knew he was going to take a huge amount of stick for that, but he knew he couldn't afford not to have her in the government because he needed the right of the party. He's going to have to push through a very painful budget, which has got you know spending cuts baked into it that no MP likes because that's tough to win an election, uh, and and uh, tax rises in it, which the right of the party won't like. So he's got to do that. You know that'll be a real test of his authority to get that budget through. And then he's got to go to them and say, and by the way, all that tough talk I did on Northern Ireland, well, you know, we, we, we're kind of ditching a load of that because we've got to do a, we've got to do a, a deal on the protocol, however unpleasant, because we can't have a trade war, we can't blow the markets up. I would move one other possibility, which is that I don't think the EU wants a trade war with the UK. The UK doesn't want a trade war with Europe. But we've seen time and again, Charles, that when we've approached these precipices and cliff edges, both sides have kind of stepped back. And so I would then pose the final question, which is, if we can't get a deal, how do both sides avoid blowing the whole thing up? How, I mean, you know, that bill is looming. And once that bill's passed, I think it's very difficult. But is there a third way? Because actually it does kind of work at the moment, the protocol. There's the data sharing going on. If you, if you poll businesses in Northern Ireland, they're not overwhelmed by it but there's some upsides because they get access to both markets there's absolutely no popular if you had a vote in norman northern Ireland, they wouldn't cancel the protocol now the unionists are deeply against it but i'm you know it's not perfect but it does operate after a fashion at the moment can you just keep it rumbling on until you get a change of the politics in westminster you get a labor government based on today's polls 
that isn't invested in it in the same way that a Tory government that built this protocol and now regrets it is. And, and so that would be my final thought. You know, if we can't get a deal, how do we avoid a proper confrontation that in the current European environment with Ukraine and energy crisis, neither side needs? Well, I, I agree with you, Peter, that the, if there's not a deal, then both sides will try and find some sort of fudge and kick the can forward to avoid an overt trade war. I'm sure you're right. But my, my worry is that if the British government proceeds with pushing the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill through Parliament, and if necessary, overrules any objections in the House of Lords, and that enters the statute book, even if it doesn't start to exercise the powers in that bill, allowing it to tear up parts of the protocol, it'll be seen as such a provocation from the EU side that the EU may well find itself inching inexorably towards punishing the British with some sort of trade war. So I, I do think that as far as the EU is concerned, the fate of that particular bill and what happens to it is, is, is the most important issue there is. But I I mean, let's let's hope we don't get that way, because as you said at the start of this podcast, Peter, a better relationship between Britain and Europe on areas like horizon, scientific research, foreign policy cooperation, all sorts of other areas does depend on solving this boring little protocol. So let, let, let's hope we can find a way forward. Peter, thanks very much for doing this podcast with the CR, and I hope to see you again soon in another podcast. My pleasure. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.